Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, June 16, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this conversation, world-renowned magician David Copperfield illuminates how magic has captivated the masses with U.S. Congressman Mark Buchan, who represents Wisconsin's 2nd District. How y'all doing? <laughs> yeah. Really happy to be here and proud to be uh, uh, sharing some of the treasures from uh, our museum, uh, our private museum in uh, Nevada uh, out there. Have you seen the exhibition? Some of you had a chance? It's pretty, pretty cool stuff, and uh, it's especially cool because there's so much of a synergy between uh, New York City and magic. So much um, New York uh, culture has infused magic throughout the years, from Houdini to uh, uh, the magic shops over here. So it's a great, uh, a great marriage, and I'm so honored to be part of uh, the New York Historical Society's history, and I'm going to learn to talk during this uh, exhibition. <laughs> So, you know, from, from my standpoint, you know, magic uh, has always been very, very important, uh, starting from Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, do you, you have to be aware that da Vinci wrote, co-wrote one of the first magic books. Pretty amazing. So he cared about what we care about, you know, and that makes me really happy, obviously. And um, making the audience dream, making the audience think about Limitless possibilities have been very, very important for a magician to do. That's their job. Da Vinci certainly did it. I'm no Da Vinci by any means, but the fact that he created things and created art that maybe didn't work at the time. A helicopter didn't work at the time, or flying didn't work at the time, but what he thought about actually got made people dream enough to actually make those things reality. And I think that's part of what we do. We kind of prototype the future in a way. uh, Allow people to think of things that are impossible now, but could be possible in the future. And that's pretty cool. You know, uh, Da Vinci, um, uh, after Da Vinci, in the 1800s, Robert Houdin um, did amazing things. Uh, Houdin is the person Houdini took his name from. Houdin was a French conjurer in the mid-1800s, and he, he invented clocks that were magic clocks, mystery clocks. He invented automatons. It became the, what we call the father of modern magic and, um, and uh, uh, started a whole generation of magicians. Uh, his inventions, uh, even today, I have in my museum a door. Uh, and that door, Houdin, back in the day, he'd pass his hand over the door and the door would, would open by itself. That was a magic trick, to open by itself. And today, you know, every grocery store... <laughs> But at the time, you know, that was a piece of uh, amazement. You know, there's uh, items in the, in the front there, uh, a turban from Alexander, the man who knows. And it had radios in it. Nobody knew about radios. And he could read people's mind with radios. Eventually, though, that technology, we all use it today. We have a little iPhone, you know. Uh, and, but th- at that point, it was a, um, a miraculous thing. So there's things that I'm doing today that will be part of people's lives, our children's lives, and be a common thing. I'm using it to amaze, and eventually that'll turn out to be something that's useful someday. Um, 
then in Houdan, when Houdan died, Houdan actually political did something. Yeah, talking about magic intersecting with politics, um, back in, I think it was the 1850s, 1856 or so, uh, there was uh, an insurrection attempt in Algeria uh, against the French government. And uh, what was happening with the marabouts, the folks that were doing this at the time, uh, were using magic, uh, performing tricks to say that they had special powers and were leading an insurrection against the French government. So the French government went to Robert Houdin, uh, figured why not have the greatest magician at the time go down there uh, and try to take care of it. So they sent Robert Houdin down there. He basically duplicated the same uh, tricks that they were doing to show that they didn't have special powers, that they were duplicable. And then he went and did things that they couldn't do and actually scared some people out of the room when he did it uh, and uh, stopped an insurrection. So uh, definitely in history, uh, magic's had a lot of influence in politics. Absolutely. And, and Mark uh, has today, uh, every Monday, you should tune into his magic. Magic Mondays, and the purpose is to kind of communicate um, political ideas that, that are, you may be, may, some are not that interesting, and he makes them interesting with magic, you know? Um, I mean, how did that begin? Yeah, you know, so I, I'm one of these people who I've been doing magic since I was eight years old. I helped pay for college doing magic shows. When I was a kid, uh, I had posters of this guy named. Um, Oh, yeah, David Copperfield uh, on my poster, on my walls. Uh, so I'm 82, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <I just laughs> yes. <laughs> a very young David Copperfield. And it's just something where I've always uh, enjoyed magic. Well, I think I wouldn't be in politics today had I not at a very young age learned how to get up in front of an audience and perform and talk to people. And that's part of why I'm doing what I'm doing. So one of the things we wanted to do when I got elected to Congress, my office is like, yeah, you do this magic. You have to incorporate it to explain things. And I'll explain things like tax policy, which can be rather boring, but when you do it with a magic trick and someone winds up with fewer pieces of a torn card, uh, you might understand a little bit why uh, you're not getting the break that you were promised. Or uh, <laughs> why in infrastructure, you, know, you can't magically produce a brick uh, for a school. It actually takes money. So we do those sort of things. And it's, uh, it's very similar to what I try to do, communicating different ideas through my magic. And that started back in Houdin's day, and when Houdin passed away, in France, we're back in France, France, uh, George Méliès. If you saw the movie Hugo, do you see the movie Hugo? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's wonderful about George Méliès, who was a, uh, kind of one of the founders of cinema, um, when he, uh, he saw the, the birth of movies, which wasn't a movie. It, was, it would be a train you know, going into the screen, coming at you, and people whoa, like that. If you, if you saw the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula movie, the Dracula goes into a theater, and every, you know, there's a train, and they see a movie as a magic trick. It was a magic trick. Movies was a magic trick. And, but Houdin took that idea and told stories with it, is credited with actually making sequential stories. So a magician, people do what we do, uh, helped to transform the cinema of today, which is pretty cool. Uh, But also in the form of inspiration. He did the famous Trip to the Moon movie. Uh, If you ever see that everybody gets on the thing, land, the moon goes into the, 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 the spaceship goes into the moon's eye and so forth. You know, visual, they talk, Jules Verne wrote about it, but, but he visualized it. You could see it happening. And when you see something happening, it really can inspire young people to really make it happen. Uh, and uh, 70 years later, from when that Trip to the Moon movie was made by Melies, we landed on the moon. 70 years later. 
That's pretty amazing. So, not that we should take credit for that, but it's amazing how just visualizing something really can inspire reality that changes that changes the world. Um, you know, these are inventors, storytellers, and dreamers that really change the world, and that's that's why I'm I'm proud to do what I do. Um, what do we forget? Um, I think what we want to do uh, we talked a little bit about history of magic, but you know, you're show and your, um, the years that you've been performing, you've really transformed modern magic, uh, the types of things you've done and, and how you've done your show. And uh, you know, we want to talk a little bit about some of the, the effects that you did that really did transform how we know magic. Well, you should know that my beginnings uh, really started as a ventriloquist. I was a really lousy ventriloquist as an eight-year-old. All my jokes were, were out of the back of a boy's life magazine. It was not... not it was, not so. <laughs> um, and um, but the kids kind of liked it. They kind of they gave applause. Well, I kind of liked this job of getting applause. <laughs> so I went. I didn't think I, I didn't realize I was a bad ventriloquist. I thought it must be the dummy. <laughs> so so I went. My mother took me to Port Authority and went. To, we went to Macy's to find a better ventriloquist dummy to improve my act. And. Um, and at Macy's, there was a guy behind the counter with a little board, and a coin would appear and disappear on this board. And it was really amazing. It looked like trick photography. And that board is actually out there in the in display, because that, that's the beginning of my magic career, that little board. And I fell in love with magic, and the ventriloquism gladly went away. Um, there's other people who are far better than me. But magic became my thing. And I searched in New York to find here in this great city, a place called Tannen's Magic Shop. And Tannen's was this amazing place, still exists, a place of wonders. You'd go into this place and you'd see Dick Cavett over there. You'd see Johnny Carson there. You'd see Orson Welles in the corner. Uh, and you go, oh my God, this is like heaven. And all the people you'd see on the Ed Sullivan Show were in, in this room, all doing magic. And I thought, man, this is the greatest thing ever. So I really got involved with magic very heavily and started inventing magic. And it came very easy to me. And I, I invented magic that was in the Encyclopedia of Magic called Tarbell. I was 12 years old. My invention ended up in the Tarbell Encyclopedia of Magic. I sucked at everything else. <laughs> Nothing to be proud of. But, but magic, for some reason, came easy for me. And my idols weren't other magicians. My idols were Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and Frank Sinatra and people that told stories and made me cry and laugh. I, my parents would take me to see Broadway shows and say, how am I going to take what I love, which is this, all this Broadway and theater and all this communicating ideas and emotions and combining with something I happen to be good at accidentally. And I started telling stories with magic. All my magic was very story-based and communicating. I wanted the people to cry, not just go, oh, I wanted to cry. I wanted to, to laugh and create all those emotions that, that really affected me as, as a kid. Um, so all my shows were about that. And I started doing TV specials. And one day, as part of those TV specials, they were doing very well, I had an idea to make an airplane disappear. Not a story, just an airplane disappear. And it looked like this. And this is something we kind of just put on, on the special. And the next day, people went, went crazy. It was kind of like, it was kind of like the breaking the internet, and there was no internet. <laughs> they talk, Around the world, they talked about this thing. And I was kind of mad about this. I said, you like that? <laughs> you know, you, that's what you like? I, I, I'm telling these emotional stories about family and, and, and you know, this. You like this airplane thing? I said, what am I going to do? Uh, so the next thing we did was to vanish the Statue of Liberty. 
because I knew if I did that, I could communicate an idea to make it more, give it more gravitas, speak from my heart, not just do a big illusion. And I said, I'm going to talk to the guy that knows more about liberty than anybody, Frank Capra. So I went to see Frank Capra, who's towards the end of his days, and we met with him in his house. And I said, Mr. Capra, I want you to help me write a speech about what would the world would be like without liberty, what the world would be like without freedom. So when I make it disappear, I can explain, imagine this moment, how lucky we are and what we take for granted. And he says, I'm in, but here's the deal. You're going to go up, you're going to set up the whole thing, and you're going to fail. So what do you mean? He says, well, you're going to try to make the statue of liberty disappear, and it's not going to work because you can't get rid of liberty. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Mr. Capra, I, I can't, can't do that. I, CBS <laughs> wants me to actually do something. No, no, no. Do this. It'll be great. And I got to experience Frank Capra. Like you read about Frank Capra. He went with Harry Cohen, who was the head of Columbia Studios, and he was the tyrant of the studios. But Frank Capra would go up against Harry Cohen. He was the only person. He was, Frank Capra was very short of chart of the size, stature, and he would fight with Capra famously and would win. So I got to be, uh, I got to be Harry Cohen at the other end of this thing with a very strong-willed Frank Capra. Three hours later, I kind of convinced him <laughs> to, to say, okay, I'll do it. And he, he wrote with me and this other gentleman this speech that I would give after the statue would be dis- vanish. So the statue would vanish, I give the speech, and the statue would re- re- reappear. It was very well-received. People really liked it. That People were watching everywhere. And at the time, it was really breaking the internet at that point, before the internet. And um, 30 years pass, and The Americans, you know the show The Americans? Fantastic. One of the best shows on TV. It's about two Russian spies. And their experience, they said, we're going to use, we want to use your thing. The creator of the show was a kid watching my Statue of Liberty thing, like you. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and he said... Um, I want to do this as part of this thing because you got Russian spies watching this speech about freedom and so forth. Would that be interesting? So uh, this is a clip of how the Americans used it with a condensed version of the Capra and Copperfield speech there. And you know, Ronald Reagan gave me permission. To, they originally said no. <laughs> when I asked to, to mess around with the Statue of Liberty, I went to Liberty Island, I spoke to all of the, 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 um, the great park surface people, and they said, never, we're not going to make it happen. So but then I went to, went to the, I did lots of shows at Ford's Theater at the, at the White House, and, and I asked Reagan for, for, for permission, and he said yes. So, there we go. <laughs> so you're vanishing jets, you're vanishing monuments, uh, you're walking across the Grand Canyon, you also, though, found a way through the most simple ways to convey some of the same feelings in some of your effects. Yeah, as, as we've all learned, you know, sometimes the hardest thing to find is a simple idea. You know, I, my creative process, I get very complicated. And then Homer Leewag, who's around here, and I collaborate with Chris Kenner, we, we collaborate and do things really hard and then finally get to the simple thing, which is really hard to do. This is a very simple piece uh, called, uh, well, we call it One. And uh, it's... Uh, Again, just a simple. Um. Now, I think people saw outside um, the big illusion with the giant, very uh, large, sharp metal blade um, happening. And so you've gone from uh, these giant illusions to the, the 
expressing it through simplicity to uh, really taking, again, a real twist on something that for decades or probably centuries, people have been trying to cut people in half, and yet you found a special way to do it. I invented a sawing in half that was out in the open. What normally was in a box. And I came up with a way of doing it out in the open. And I said, I'm not going to just, it's too good to, to use as a sawing in half. And of course, Houdini has kind of has been on everyone's mind because he's a name that we all remember because of his escapes. I said, well, how about if we use a sawing in half, but not tell them it's a sawing in half? Um, let them think I'm going to escape. And, um, and that's what we did. And, uh, well, watch this. I'll talk over some of it. It's called the death saw. That was good. Still, now, still looks pretty good. David, there's a story with that one, too. So I, you couldn't quite hear it, but at one point uh, after you're separated, someone yelled something out in the audience. I, I, I do lots of shows every year, right? I do 640 shows now, currently, a year. Um, and a lot can happen. A lot can go wrong. A lot of people can, circumstances can happen. And it makes it interesting, certainly. One night, I was cut in half, and I was looking at my feet. And somebody from back, back of the audience goes, move your feet! <laughs> and the whole audience goes, oh. <laughs> so sympathetic for me. Oh, I'm cut in half, of course. But they go, oh, it's going to happen. And I, they're really kind of mad at this guy in the back of the theater. And, I, and, and I, I'm going... Thank you, God, for bringing that heckler. Thank you so much. Knowing that I've got feet that are going to move, you know, like that. So I go, thank you. And the feet, the audience don't know what to do, and the feet start to move, and the audience is like Rocky Balboa wins the fight. And then the the next minute, um, the next day, I say, we got to keep this in the show. I mean... uh, Brucey, you know, where I, I come over, you're going you're gonna to be the heckler. You're going to say, move your feet <laughs> every show. So we had the guy doing move your feet every show um, after night. And it got a good reaction. But the funny thing is, not as good as the first time. The audience is really smart. The audience is really smart. They sense when something's real. They sense tension together. It, it was good, but not as great as it was when it was an absolute real moment. You know, amazing. Exactly. <laughs> every show, every lecture, I'm going to have a kid <laughs> scream. <laughs> Let's make some more kids. Okay. <laughs> now, you also had um, some effects where you had, you know, effects within effects as you're doing a special, I think one on the, uh, about a train. Yeah. We did the illusion with the Orient Express. We made the Orient Express levitate and disappear. And the opening of that, the opening of that show... Um, we wanted to have something that took place in that environment. And we came up with that thing that's really, really terrific. And I'm showing this just because it looks great. (laughs) Still looks pretty good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, David, we've got about 25 minutes left. And I know that um, all these different effects, it's hard to put outside, but you've got an amazing... A museum you're putting together in Las Vegas, and I had the opportunity last August to see some of it. Um, you're seeing uh, the pieces out there. Anything you want to highlight for folks that they should be looking at? Uh, because you've got some amazing history. Well, this, you know, all of the Houdini fans out there, there's a whole um, area with Houdini stuff in it. Everything from his metamorphosis trunk, where he would change places uh, with Bess, his wife. Her outfit is there. He learned uh, when he did that illusion 
you know, that metamorphosis thing that it was kind of an escape, changing places with somebody locked in a thing. And he started doing handcuff escapes. And we need handcuff escapes. Like my airplane thing, people, I like that. <laughs> you know, people could relate to that. They were, uh, they could, the idea of being bound and being free communicated more of an emotional response than producing a bouquet of feather flowers um, or vanishing an elephant. People could relate to escaping from a jail or, or escaping from anything. Well, they couldn't escape from jail, but they couldn't relate to that. Some people could. But anyway, um, so that whole rotunda is the, uh, shows the uh, transition that goes from the uh, milk can escape. And you have a milk can as your, at your house, right? Yeah, my uh, midlife crisis. Um, I, my husband allowed me to buy one. And it was my favorite trick as a child. Uh, I just, it was just my favorite growing up. And when I turned 50, that was my gift to myself. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he told me that today. But the, Houdini's milk can is out there. And they did it with beer. I mean, they, beer companies would challenge him. Well, beer has fumes in it, right? So when you're in there... <laughs> Not so good. Um, but anyway, uh, his milk can is there. Uh, his straitjacket escape is out there. One of his straitjackets he used to do publicity hanging over, uh, you know, uh, very populated areas and escape. And, of course, a very famous set of handcuffs called the mirror cuffs, which, which he used. Um, and the Times uh, Mirror, Daily Mirror of London, uh, challenged him to escape from there. And you can read about stories about how we think it was done. And I think it was done that way. But his influence is very, very great. And he had a, uh, a place in Harlem here, which uh, I was able to obtain his bookcases from. The house was for sale. It just got bought. But I was able to get the bookcases. The cool part is I have his books. <laughs> you in the Library of Congress. Correct. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's, so it's amazing. His company, the Congress company, <laughs> Houdini gave, Houdini gave, half of his library to Congress, the Library of Congress, and he gave half of it to uh, a guy named John Mulholland, who was a great magic historian, performer. He was also a CIA operative using magic as a form of uh, espionage for for, for our government. Um, So, uh, but I I bought the Mulholland Library, so I have half of his library. So now, in about a a week, I get these cabinets restored, and I'm going to be able to put the books back where they were. It's kind of cool. That's awesome. It's for, for books. Applause for books. <laughs> what are books? Oh, yeah, books. And you also have a recreation of, I think, Tannins, you were saying out there, the magic shop. And yeah. there's on a wall, and I missed it the first time through, some of your original business cards when you were very young uh, and performing magic. Yeah, that I drew. I drew um, this rabbit and uh, this uh, caricature of myself on this card. I was Davino. The boy magician. <laughs> my, my father wanted me Italian. Wanted me to be Italian for some reason. I was a little Jewish boy, but um, uh, uh, so he made me Divino. He called me Divino, um, and I went for it for a while. And um, so uh, that's card that became David Copperfield out of stupidity because I have, I have to share it with Charles Dickens now. I've got to share my. <laughs> but uh, that my business cards there and my dancing cane. I kind of made was famous for us floating this cane around. And that cane is there, made of balsa wood by a guy who I saw on the Ed Sullivan Show called Fantasio, this great magician on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, some Fantasio fans are out there. Um, but uh, he actually made this out of balsa wood, this, this uh, floating cane for me. The guy that I saw as a kid doing this. So it was pretty pretty heady experience, yeah. But it's, it's, it's great. We have all the golden age of magic stuff, the, the gun that was used to do the bullet catch effect. Uh, Chung Ling Su died uh, at the Wood Green Empire Theater 
in uh, in London, and uh, and and they. Uh, and one of the guns used to kill him is out there. Uh, the um, just amazing, amazing historical stuff. Houdini posters, Keller, Thurston, um, remarkable stuff. Yeah. Now uh, we have a couple more clips, and uh, I think these last two clips are two of probably the most emotional, uh, I think, response you've got from the audience. I mean, you've done many, many things that have gotten great responses, but uh, one of these I know. Uh, the next one, you're especially, I think. Well, I, you know, I grew up here. We, we know about snow, right? We know about snow a lot, right? But my parents used to take me to see my Aunt Dee in Florida before it would snow, so I didn't, never saw snow. So um, the first time seeing snow was really a magical moment for me. And so I created an illusion. The snowstorm in China was a classic of magic. It would be torn pieces of paper and you'd blow them in the air and do that. And I, and I found a technology to make snow that was real snow, not paper snow, and uh, how it made me, you know, brought me back to that time. And, and this is the piece that we did, really story, story-based piece. So, David, credits are running. You mentioned a little bit about uh, the collaborative process before that you've worked with folks. Can you just share a little bit of kind of behind the scenes, behind the curtain uh, part of how you work to create some of these great illusions? It's, it's, uh, that probably took two years of time to get it right. Uh, flying, which you'll see in a minute, I think, uh, took seven years of work. In the show now, I've tried to change language uh, once again. It's all about uh, aliens, I've got little aliens, and time travel, and spaceships. We've got giant spaceships that appear in the show, and dinosaurs. Things that really kind of are part of our soul, you know. Um, and I think it's important to take, I mean, in literature, we take things that are part of who we are, and literature becomes that music also. And I keep trying to do that with magic. So with time travel, alien spaceships, when you come to Vegas, see the show, it's pretty good. Um, but um, the process is a long process. This is alien piece, uh, and the show's taken us, it's kind of like a Pixar movie, you know. Uh, they take five or six years to get them right, and they come up really right. They're not afraid to fail, 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 keep redoing it. I do it in front of a paying audience. <laughs> so, but yeah, we're, it's finally getting kind of good. So, uh, and it's a, a big team. We've got Homer Leewag, who's here today, who's my co-director. Uh, Chris Kenner, who's been my executive producer many years. A whole team of really smart people. We have Mike Reese, who's here in the audience today. He has got a great book, uh, he Springfield Confidential. He's uh, very, very nice. Eh? You can, don't, don't stand up, don't stand up. Uh, but uh, you know, he helped to write uh, the material for my alien piece, for example. So I'll reach out to experts and professionals and, and, uh, and learn many things. I've got, you know, a great uh, magician collaborators that collaborate with it. My friend Levent is here in the audience. We have a lot of people that will, I can call upon to, I'm forgetting somebody, I'll be in trouble. But, you know, people that will reach out and try to make it better. And it's not, not unlike the Pixar process, actually. You know, really getting the best people and then failing and failing and failing and finally getting it right. And when we get it right, it's very rewarding, and it's torture in the process. I call it, I call it glorious torture to get to that point. But uh, it's not unlike what, how movies are made or how art is made. Let me ask you about another challenge. Um, John Lewis, who I serve with in Congress, one of his famous sayings is getting into good trouble. Right, getting to get good trouble, good trouble, and one of the things I think uh, when I was at your show last August, uh, I think over half the people that came onto stage didn't speak English as a first language um, because you have such an enormous amount of people who worldwide are, are following what you're doing. I think you said four billion dollars in sales uh, of tickets. We've done we've done almost ten world tours yeah. where I've toured in from Russia to 
you know, to every, every to, to, to China, to uh, every, just every, every place, South America, all around the world, Alaska. And those people come to see my show in Las Vegas, thinking I'm going to do the show they saw. And the show I saw is I have written all over the stage their language. So I kind of phonetically go, go through the show, and with translators too, me kind of suffering through their language. And they love it. They, you know, I, uh, I, I mess up their language. It's kind of like Charo's old act. <laughs> um, but then when, when, they come, when they come here, they're all together like the Tower of Babel in a theater, expecting me to do stuff like that. And luckily, there's enough visual stuff and enough emotional stuff they can understand visually. But they're all, all these languages in one room. And um, it's a great thing to have you know, to have all those people there. But it's a real challenge because I get them up on stage and I have, we get through it. It's fun. Yeah. I hope you don't mind if I share a story that you were telling me, um, just because it's topical time-wise. You know, this week was the uh, North Korea summit that occurred um, with the president. And uh, interestingly, if you followed a, a couple months back when the North and South Korean leader got together, there's a picture that went viral because it was uh, the first time they got together, they had dinner and they happened to have a magician performing, and uh, they were laughing and uh, clearly uh, coming together as two countries that have officially been on paper at war for a very long time uh, with magic. And then you shared a story with me. I hope you don't mind I'm bringing this up, but about North Korea, because I found this, again, fascinating. When you talk about uh, why David Copperfield was in the initial clip and all these shows and everything, this just shows, again, how big... No, no, it's okay. The brand of David Copperfield. No, no, no. <laughs> no it's, a, it's a crazy thing that the, the father, Kim Jong-un, yeah. Kim Jong-il, Il, Il. thank you, the father's Kim Jong-il, kind of liked what I did. And they, he contacted our State Department, and they wanted to put up a David Copperfield, believe it or not, David Copperfield statue in a square. <laughs> <laughs> and make a David Copperfield theater. And two years of negotiations with our State Department, because they were obviously, you know, had an interest in this thing, and it didn't happen. But he was like, you know, I guess I was his Dennis Rodman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got piercings, I got piercings. No, no but it, it was amazing. They, they, he loved magic that much. And years passed, and he passed away, and they did a big David Copperfield-style magic show there stealing most of my stuff. <laughs> but, but, you know, they did a pretty good job, actually. You know, it was, it was very moneyed and, you know, whatever you call it. But it, it, it was pretty amazing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like looking at these clips, but more North Korean-like. <laughs> I just think it's an amazing story and very topical for the week. So uh, I know there's one final clip, and uh, this is one where when we were talking, I said, I, I go to, I, I'm still allowed to, with my job, get to a magic convention or two a year. Um, Explain what a magic convention is. A magic convention is where a bunch of magicians get together. Lots uh, of thousands. Lots of, 1,600 people, one in August, that we go to uh, in Las Vegas. And um, when you get together with other magicians, uh, there is an enormous amount of respect for David Copperfield. Um, he is someone who uh, magicians know, not only is he an innovator, but uh, he respects uh, magic so much, hence the museum you have, right? I mean, it's just something that uh, to have that in history means so very much. And there's an effect that I have heard more people at these conventions, so that your peers, when they saw uh, you fly, that it was just something they said that they w- their, their goal is to ever try to get the emotional response that came out of uh, that clip. I just want to talk a little about the history of that and that clip. I was going to escape another topic. I was going to escape from a volcano. <laughs> so we were 
you know, working on technology that I would levitate out of a volcano. And um, we looked at that, the technology. It was simple at the time. And I went home and I said, something's here that could be better than that. And I, when I was a kid, as many of you remember Mary Martin on your TV set. And you'd see the wire, you know, dangling around. But it really made you cry. You really wanted to be Mary Peter Pan flying around. It was really affecting to all, to all of us, you know. And um, I said, this, instead of levitating a volcano, I think I can fly. And we took seven years to get it right. My father contributed some ideas to it. Everybody worked hard in it. I met with um, Christopher Reeve while he was in a wheelchair. And we talked about it, too, because he worked really hard in it. I read someplace that he really cared. He was the first guy to do Superman after many, many years. And he looked great, right? When he flew, he looked great, right? And I said, what is it? Why did it, why did it work? How come it worked? And he said, David, it's landings. He said, I worked on my landing. All the flying, it's, it's like an airplane, you know. It's easy to fly an airplane, but to land an airplane, well, that's another story. Landings. And we talked about it. And I worked on my landings <laughs> to make sure they were really good. And he was right. Um, and then, um, and then uh, on an airplane, I saw Terrence Stamp. Remember Terrence Stamp? He was in the, the collector. He's a collector, Terrence Stamp. And he hated flying. <laughs> he says, I don't, they left me up there where they were lighting. And it's it really funny to buy. But anyway, I went with the Christopher Reeve inspiration. And we worked very hard on this. And we created this flying thing. And you know, it got, you know, adults would cry watching this thing because so many people shared that need to be free and to forget about problems and flying was that, was that thing. And, uh, and it worked out pretty good. It's one of my better pieces. <laughs> Hit it. <laughs> Not too shabby. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History or visit us at nyhistory.org.